It has certainly been a delight to be with you and to have the privilege to give these three messages to you over these days and to be with many of your young people over the weekend at the, the youth conference. Do you see how I'm, I'm putting the accent in the right place there? The weekend. We say weekend. We say Sinclair. Sinclair. So I'm trying to uh, understand and um, certainly have, have come to get an ear for the, the difference between the different accents that are here and that's very good. <laughs> you know how we we in America, we have just our boring flat accents, so we very much like to hear all of the lilts and all of the accents here. And I, and I could just speak on and on about different banner books that have meant so much to me. I think the very first banner book I was given was in university and was given the, the volume by Lloyd-Jones' addresses on the Puritans and just opened up a world. Many of the, the names in there were unknown to me and then uh, shortly after that, getting Lloyd-Jones on Knowing the Times and getting some of his, of his evangelistic sermons and then reading Ian Murray's biography of Jonathan Edwards and then revival and revivalism and then, then getting the, the two massive volumes of Jonathan Edwards and almost had to purchase a magnifying glass so I could <laughs> read through there. One of my classes, I had a Jonathan Edwards class in seminary, and I don't recommend this as perhaps the, the best means of instruction, but it was interesting. Our professor said, I know you won't get a lot of it. I know you'll have to skim a whole bunch of it, but I want you to read everything in that two volume. That's your assignment. And so at least got something of it and forgotten a lot of it. But... Uh, it's just a privilege to be here and to meet so many dear brothers from all over the United Kingdom and then brothers from uh, the Netherlands and from parts of Africa and today one from Albania. So thank you for having me here. I want to do something uh, just a little bit different in this third address. It will be more topical and more deeply theological, but hopefully at the end after thinking hard through some of these theological ideas, you will find it also to be quite practical, pastoral, and relevant. So there will be different texts we will look at along the way, not one specific text. I want to talk to you about our sufferings as they relate to Christ's sufferings, which is what we've been doing throughout this conference. But I want to add another dimension, and that is to think about God's sufferings and consider, is there such a thing? The word that we will be looking at is the theological word impassibility, and I'll give a working definition of that in just a moment. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. You're familiar with that line from Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be?, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. That line captures the wonder of the incarnation, that on the cross, the immortal dies. Do you see the paradox or the seeming paradox? If you were to say the mortal dies, no great mystery. If you were to say the immortal never dies, Again, no great mystery. But to say, tis mystery all, the immortal, by definition one who cannot die, on the cross dies. Now we are getting to a great mystery and the wonder and the glory of the gospel. Or to put it another way, in the person of Jesus Christ, the impassible suffers. The mystery and the majesty of the incarnation, I want to argue, is weakened if we have a God who, as God, experiences human suffering. It is not a miracle to say that the passable suffers, but if the impassable suffers, then God in the incarnation has accomplished something unique and remarkable but I get ahead of myself. Let's start with a definition. By impassibility, I mean this, that God cannot suffer 
and is incapable of being acted upon by an external force. Impassibility, that God cannot suffer and is incapable of being acted upon by an external force. Related to this definition is the question about God's passion, his emotions, his inner life. Does God have emotions? If he does, are they like our emotions? How are they different? We will get to that shortly. Over the past century or so, impassibility has become passé. To suggest that God can suffer, and indeed to suggest that he must suffer in order to be a good and loving God, has become a new kind of orthodoxy. For most of Christian history, theologians believed that God could not suffer. In fact, divine passibility, the belief that he can suffer, is at the heart of two ancient heresies, Theopascatism and Patropassionism. A document from the Council of Rome in 382 concluded this, quote, if anyone says that in the passion of the cross, it is God himself who felt the pain and not the flesh and soul which is Christ, the Son of God, had taken to himself, he is mistaken. These may be terms that you can um, recollect from somewhere way back in your memory, or perhaps they're new terms. Theopascatism comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and pasco, meaning to suffer. Uh, One of my professors in university in one of my religion classes, he always liked to sort of throw out the Greek words and throw out the, the Latin words, and sometimes he would throw out ones that were very obvious, and he just... He just sort of slipped into Latin as a way to sort of impress us, and he'd say, please open your holy Bibles, Sacra Scriptura, oh, right, right, and that means sacred scripture, oh, good, 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 I'm tracking with you now, but these terms perhaps are unfamiliar, theo meaning God, theos, pasco meaning to suffer, Theopascatism was the belief that God suffered as God on the cross so that when Jesus died, God suffered. Related to that is Patra Passionism. Patra being the word for father and passion there for suffering. The idea that the father suffered along with the son on the cross so that not only did the son suffer in his God forsakenness, But God the Father suffered to see his son dying on the cross. Both were declared heresies, theopascatism, patropassionism. A new song, which I think is in this book perhaps, and it's a song we sing in our church and is very uh, well-loved, is the song, How Deep the Father's Love. How deep the Father's love for us. How many are familiar with that song? Yes, almost everyone. One of them. My favorite songs, but I I must tell you, I've always wondered about this line. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. It seems to me you can interpret that in two different ways. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, could refer to the son's experience in God-forsakenness as the father turns his face away so that the one who is experiencing the pain of searing loss is the son as the father turns his face away. But it also seems that you could interpret it a different way, that the great pain of searing loss is the father's as he turns his face away from the son. Now, I think the first meaning is correct, largely because I want it to be correct. (laughs) I hope that's the intent of the verse, because the second meaning would be akin to patropassionism. Theopascatism and patropassionism were rejected by the church in the 6th century by the patriarch of Constantinople in the east and in the west by Hormisadas, the bishop of Rome. Now, before I go on to make a case for impassibility, let me make clear that I don't think that to believe in a God who suffers 
makes one automatically guilty of these two heresies. I'm going to argue why I think it's a mistake and I think it's a serious mistake and why we would do well to stick to the old paths and what the reformers and the confessions taught. But it's, it's not the case that those who believe that God suffers are automatically guilty of theopascatism and patropassionism. Here's why. Theopascatism was a Christological heresy. It was defended by Peter the Fuller of Antioch and a, a monophysite. He believed Christ had only one nature. Therefore, when Christ died on the cross, the divine nature must have suffered since there was no distinction to be made between the human and the divine nature. And his belief that God suffered on the cross was an outworking of his belief that Christ possessed only one nature. So it was a Christological heresy. Patripassionism was a Trinitarian heresy. It was essentially modalistic, believing that the Father and the Son were the same person appearing in different modes. You know, you explain to a young person the Trinity is like water, ice, and vapor, and then you hear that voice from somebody way back in your head, that's a heresy, don't say that. And then you say, well, it's like an apple with the skin and the core and the seed, and someone says, don't say that either. Well, it's like a man who can be a father and I said, no, just give up, just go, just give some Bible verses. It was a Trinitarian heresy because it said whatever the son experienced, the father also experienced because the persons of the Trinity are not distinct persons, but different expressions of the same person. So the son cannot suffer without the father also suffering for there is one God and this one God is the father. So it was Trinitarian heresy. In other words, everyone who espouses theopascatism or patropassionism also believes that God suffers, but not everyone who believes God suffers would necessarily hold to the Christological implications of theopascatism or the Trinitarian implications of patropassionism. Let me give you an example. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, which is on most levels, a magnificent book. He does argue for divine passibility. He says, on page 326, at least in my edition, he says, there is good biblical evidence that God not only suffered in Christ, but that God in Christ suffers with his people still. Now, earlier in the book, Stott is careful to say that God did not die on the cross, nor did the Father die on the cross. So Stott very explicitly wants to distance himself from theopascatism and patropassionism. Here's what he says on page 155. An overemphasis on the sufferings of God on the cross may mislead us either into confusing the persons of the Trinity and denying the eternal distinctions of the Son, like the modalists or patropassions, or into confusing the natures of Christ and denying that he was one person in two natures like the monophysites or the theopascites. So Stott is careful enough to know the dangers, and though he wants to argue for passability, he does not want to fall into the ditch of either ancient heresy. But still, he says, after that paragraph, he says two sentences later, quote, it seems permissible to refer to God suffering on the cross. And so ought we to conclude that God suffered on the cross and as Stott said, that God in Christ still suffers with his people. Is God impassable or does he suffer with us? To put it very pastorally, if you go into the hospital and you hold someone's hand and they're asking, why am I going through such pain and suffering? Would you be right or would you be wrong to say to that loved one, God feels your pain. God suffers with you. That's a very pastoral question. How ought we to think of that? That's what I want to try to clear up. Stott is certainly not the only one who in recent years has wanted to highlight the suffering of God. Karl Barth spoke of God's own heart suffering on the cross. Bonhoeffer said, quote, our God is a suffering God. Most famously, Jürgen Moltmann argued in his book, The Crucified God, that the father suffered loss as his son died 
on Good Friday. Another well-respected philosopher, theologian, I think it was Nicholas Waltersdorf, admitted after a tragedy in his own life that he found the doctrine of impassibility, quote, impossible to accept and grotesque. So many, if not most, Christian books, not banner books, I think, but most books you would pick up on suffering or on the problem of evil, especially books written at a popular level, will offer this condolence that God weeps with those who weep, God suffers with those who suffer, that God is experiencing the very pain that you are experiencing. And even more than that, to say anything contrary is to have a God who is a kind of moral monster. So why has impassibility fallen on hard times? There's a number of reasons. Number one, we live in an age that prizes authenticity and nothing is thought more authentic than brokenness and pain. And so suffering is our culture's currency for what is real. And so God seems abstract if he doesn't have suffering. Second, we live in an age where Christians are suspicious of anything that might sound Greek and many people urge that the, and argue that divine impassibility is, is simply a holdover from a Greco-Roman world, the, the old idea of an unmoved mover, something of the Stoic philosophers, and the Hebrew understanding would be much different, they say. Third reason, most people assume that a suffering God is a more caring God. What meaning can there be in love that is not costly to the lover, it is said. God must stand in solidarity with our pain. He heals our suffering by sharing in it. A God who cannot suffer, cannot love. Only the suffering God can help, it has been said. A fourth reason, divine suffering is thought to be one of the best answers, maybe the only answer, to the problem of evil in our world. After two world wars, a holocaust, Ethnic genocides, how can we worship a God that we would posit as immune to pain? Perhaps had to read the famous book Night by Elie Wiesel to read that several times in university. And in a famous scene, he suggests that God, as the man asks, um, you know, where is God as they, they see this man hanging on the gallows? And he reflects and said, God is right there hanging on the gallows. He says, Moltmann later says about that story, any other answer would be blasphemy. To speak here of a God who could not suffer would make God a demon. And then a fifth reason against impassibility, and this is often the most compelling to evangelicals, it is said that if Christ shows us what God is like, then shouldn't we conclude that our God is a suffering God? We see in Christ, certainly, we've been talking about reflecting on his deep passion and suffering. And if Christ reveals to us what God is like, must we conclude that God then is a suffering God? So with all of this arguing against impassibility, why do I want to argue that the doctrine is still defensible and in fact good news for us as Christians. So here's what I want to do is give you five arguments in favor of divine impassibility and then finish very briefly with five reasons why I think it is good news. So I've already given you five reasons why it's fallen on hard times and then I have, so this is the 15 point sermon. Wow, I am going out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> we will try to move quickly and I will just warn you that you need to have your thinking caps on as we go. So five arguments for divine impassibility. Number one, the weight of church history overwhelmingly supports the notion that God does not suffer. The early church held it as self-evident that the eternal God was unchangeable and immutable. Justin Martyr, one of the earliest church fathers, said, what separates God from creation is that he is, quote, unchangeable and eternal. He is superior to things that can be changed. Our God, he wrote, is, quote, unbegotten and impassable. 
Irenaeus, writing in the second century, says, quote, the Gnostics endow God with human affections and emotions. However, if they had known the scriptures and had been taught by the truth, they would have known beyond doubt that God is not like men. His thoughts are not like the thoughts of men, for the father of all is at a vast distance from those dispositions and passions that operate among men. Likewise, Arnobius, writing at the beginning of the fourth century, said, Our salvation is not necessary to him such that he would gain something or suffer some loss if either made us divine or allowed us to be destroyed by corruption. There is no doubt that the early church fathers believed in an impassable God. And yet, this is important, we should not think that that belief in impassibility meant that they conceived of God as static, lifeless, or uncaring. They did not swallow this stoic philosophy hook, line, and sinker. Clement of Alexandria was one of the fathers most influenced by Platonic and Stoic thought, and yet he said about the thoroughly transcendent God that he was, quote, by nature rich in pity in consequence of his own goodness. Or listen to this from origin. God must be believed to be entirely without passion and destitute of all these emotions, Origen says, impassibility, and yet elsewhere, Origen says, the Father himself and the God of the whole universe is long-suffering, full of mercy and pity. So is Origen just being inconsistent? Well, that would be par for the course for Origen at times, but I think something else is going on here, something massively important. Origen was among the first theologians, but not the last, who wanted to maintain that God was both impassable and impassioned. He wanted to defend that God was wholly unlike his creatures in their changing states. And at the same time, he wanted to do justice to the rich emotional language the Bible uses with reference to to God. In other words, we could say the God of the church fathers was impassable, but he was not dispassionate. We see this in Calvin. Calvin depicts God as full of vitality and activity, but he is also transcendent. Surely, Calvin says in the Institute, surely God does not have blood, does not suffer, cannot be touched with hands. Or what about the Westminster Confession of Faith? Famously says, there is but only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own will, immutable, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, and on and on. So did you hear that? Presbyterians, you heard it. The rest, I hope, heard it too. The confession has no problem saying, on the one hand, that God is immutable without passion, and we'll come back to that. But then it goes on to say he is long-suffering. So how do we make sense of this? Well, we must make note in the Westminster Confession, the context is defining what does it mean that God is a most pure spirit. And so it says he is without body, he's not corporeal, without parts, cannot be divided, and without passions, that is without bodily sensations. There is a rich history in Christian thinking of distinguishing between passions and affections. Think of Jonathan Edwards. His famous book is Religious Affections. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment because it's very significant, but let me just sketch the difference. Both Augustine and Aquinas distinguished between passions, which were involuntary and passive, they, they, they came upon you, and affections, which were active and voluntary. So there's a long-standing distinction. A passion was something that came upon you and you were passive to have it act upon you. It was involuntary. Somebody punches you in the stomach and you feel a passion. 
you hurt, and then you may want to punch him back, perhaps, but that's a one kind of passion. An affection was thought to be active, self-chosen, self-directed. So I can't be sure, but I think that the Westminster Confession would be self-consciously standing in this same tradition to say that God is without parts or passions. He cannot ever be passive. He cannot be acted upon by an external force. And so we see throughout church history from Augustine to Anselm to Aquinas to nearly everyone else until the 19th century, this belief that God did not suffer and at the same time, this did not make God static, lifeless, and distant. So church history, that's the first reason. Second reason for impassibility. The Bible teaches that God does not change. The scriptures make this point repeatedly. God, unlike everything in his creation, is independent and unfailingly consistent. You know the verses, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17, with God there is no variation of shadow due to change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Have you heard the, the anecdote before? Uh, Carl Henry, who was the first editor of Christianity Today uh, in the United States, which was meant to be this rival to the Christian century, which was the liberal magazine, and this was to be a magazine for evangelicals. And he was at some gathering, and Karl Barth was there, and uh, Carl Henry was a, a young man, and he introduced himself as the editor of this new magazine, Christianity Today. And as the story goes, Karl Barth said to him, you know, knowing that he was a, an old-fashioned sort of evangelical, said, don't you mean Christianity yesterday? And the room was filled with, with snickering uh, to which Carl Henry replied without skipping a beat, Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. It's a pretty good line. Second Timothy 2.13 says, God cannot deny himself. In Acts 17, Paul says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So our God does not change, does not lack. God's unchangeableness lies at the very heart of what it means to be God. Here's Herman Bovink. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in Him alone. For only God is pure being and no becoming. So if you pull at this thread of impassibility or immutability, you unravel a ball of theological problems. You have a God who is miserable as he suffers constantly with his creatures. And when you have a God who is suffering constantly with his creatures and a God in some sense unhappy because that's what it means to experience pain, then you are inching closer to a process theology. You know, process theology is where God is so much in process with his created world that God's interest in saving us is in some level to save himself, to free himself from this ever-evolving process of becoming. And then in process theology, you cannot say with Paul in Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. This immutable, impassable God, it must be stressed again, is not the same as being an immobile God. To be immutable is not to be motionless. God is always active, always dynamic, always relational. In fact, the church fathers argued, it is because God is so full of activity that he cannot be subject to change. His love is love 
to the maximum at every moment and every nanosecond. So he cannot change because he cannot possibly be more loving than he is at all times. He can never become more just or more good. See, God cares for us, but it is not human caring that has spasms and fluctuations and ebbs and flows. His kindness is not capable of being diminished or augmented. Isn't that good news? Third reason for impassibility. God's emotional life is not identical to ours. There's a woman in in my church, and this maybe tells you about some of the people in our church. She's a, a young mom, and here's the question she often asks me after sermons. Kevin, you still haven't answered my question. Does God have emotions? You need to go to a banner conference or something. You need to, I don't know. That's not the question I'm expecting to get as I shake hands after the service. But she's asked me several times and I've tried to answer her and I don't know that I have, so I don't know that I'll answer it satisfactorily for you, but give it a shot. In one sense, it's patently obvious God has emotion. Scripture tells us God is grieved, he's angry, he rejoices, he's moved to pity, he's full of mercy, he's overflowing in love. So... We should never apologize for speaking of God in this rich emotional language. And yet, if we think about it, we cannot say that God's emotions are just like our emotions. Ever thought about what is an emotion? Probably not. More important things to think about. But what is an emotion? Is an emotion what takes place when our heart begins to pump more blood and the glands release endorphins? Well, in that sense, God cannot have an emotion. He doesn't have glands. He doesn't have blood. He doesn't have physiological chemistry, spirit. Is an emotion what you feel when somebody punches you in the gut and you feel pain or anger? Or when somebody tickles you and you laugh? Well, clearly God does not experience emotion in this way because he's spirit. He does not have a body. So how do we understand emotions in God? Well, we must understand that God's emotions are His active way of construing the variations of experiences in the created world. So God is acting, though the experiences are not acting upon Him. So if we equate emotions with the old sense of passion, something passively come upon you, then God does not have emotions. But if we think of affections, that God's emotions are cognitive construals of a situation, then we're getting closer. God's evaluation at any moment of some activity in the created world so that God is always active So that these emotional changes, as they look to be changes in God, are actually God's constant activity in relationship to his changing creatures. You know the passage from 1 Samuel 15. God says in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. In verse 29, it says, the God of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So does God regret or not? Yes. Right there in the same chapter, it says, well, God regretted, but God doesn't regret. And so here's where one of our foundational principles of biblical hermeneutics must come into play. Namely, the biblical authors were not stupid. Okay, that's just one of the foundational arguments that the author there of Samuel wasn't caught off. Oh, did I just, did I just say that? Oh, I just said he didn't and didn't. Ah, I don't know. We'll be postmodern someday and we won't care. (laughs) Clearly, there is a sense in which from our vantage point in this world of contingency, God looks upon a situation and can be said to have regret. And yet God as God is never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He never takes risks. He is not a man, and so he cannot regret because his immutable will cannot be thwarted. One way might be to think of God's emotional life as white light 
refracted through a prism. So you've seen this or you've seen a picture of it. You have some kind of glass prism and you have white light going through it. And as the light goes through the prism, you see the colors, you see variation, you see change. It's the same white light, but as it moves through this prism, it explodes into color and diversity. And in the same way, you could say God, who is pure activity, always good, always true, always just, always love to the maximum, that as we see that through the lens of human experience, then God, as that white light, is refracted to us in an explosion of color and diversity and what would appear to be change. So God's emotional life must be understood as different from human emotions. A fourth reason for divine impassibility, and I do see that the time is going quickly, which is what the pastor says when he wants to buy a little more time. Oh, for those Puritan days with the hourglass and just turn that over and there we go again for another one. Number four, what is said about Jesus Christ cannot automatically and without qualification be said about God. I know you want one more theological term, so let me give it to you. You're saying, could I write one more down here? Communication of idioms, or you could call it communication of properties. What it really means is the sharing of attributes. It goes back to Cyril of Alexandria, but it was used by a number of theologians, including Calvin. This, this idea, the communication of properties or the sharing of attributes, was, was designed to help us think about the two natures of Christ. And according to this idea... What can be said about either nature of Christ can be said about the person of Christ. But what can be said about the person of Christ cannot necessarily be said about either nature. And what can be said about one nature cannot necessarily be said about the other. Calvin draws on this in his Institutes. So, for example, Christ fell asleep and took a nap in the boat. Can you say, therefore, that the divine nature was sleepy? Can you say that the divine nature took a nap? You can say the world was created through Christ. Can you say the world was created through the human nature? See, what Christ did, he did as a single person, a union of two natures. So what you can say about either nature, you can say about the person, but what you say about the person, you cannot automatically say about the two natures. So to say that Christ died does not necessarily follow that we could say God died. Now there is, boy, this gets tricky, isn't it? Because there is, again, a sense if we have the, the, the wherewithal to guard it in our minds that the God-man died. You know, again, in that hymn, And Can It Be, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Now, some hymnals will now say that thou, my Lord, should die for me to avoid some of this confusion. I think there is a way we can say that thou, my, God's should, my God, shouldst die for me, but we must understand that it is not God as God. It is not the divine nature, but it is the divine person, the God-man Jesus Christ. So what is said about Christ cannot automatically be predicated of the two natures. So Jesus shows us perfectly what God is like. He demonstrated God's love and power and mercy. But this does not mean that every experience of Christ can be predicated of God as God or of the divine nature, which leads to a fifth and final argument. And this, I think, is most important. Without impassibility, the necessity of the incarnation does not make sense. Uh, turn just quickly to Hebrews chapter 2. I believe this is the argument that the author of Hebrews wants to make. Hebrews 2.9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels... Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, do you, do you hear the purpose statement in that? So that the Son of God had to be made lower than the angels for a time so that he might taste death, which is to say, apart from the incarnation, the Son could not die because God, by definition, is immortal. If you keep reading in Hebrews 2, you'll see in verse 10 that Christ had to be made perfect through suffering. Have you ever thought of that language? Christ had to be perfected. Well, wasn't he the perfect son of God? Well, the sense here of perfection is of qualification. That Christ was not lacking in any moral excellence. It means that the son had to be qualified to be our redeemer. And what was the qualification? Verse 14 says that he would share in flesh and blood so that, as verse 18 says, he might suffer as his brothers suffered. Hebrews 2 is exalting in the condescension of God's Son. Were it not for the incarnation, Jesus Christ would not qualify as a sympathetic high priest, one who was tempted through suffering, one who was made like his brothers in every respect except for sin. So do you see the connection with impassibility? If God as God can suffer, then the incarnation is robbed of its glorious condescension. There is no mystery and no majesty in the incarnation apart from impassibility. Why become a man if God is capable as God of experiencing the suffering of man? then we have a redundant incarnation. Ignatius said that the God who cannot suffer for our sakes accepted suffering. Irenaeus affirmed that in the incarnation, the invisible was made visible, the incomprehensible comprehensible, and the impassable made passable. So our salvation required a mediator unlike anything the universe had known, a God-man, human and divine, both mortal and immortal, passable and impassable. If God can suffer, if God could die, if God could experience loss, cur Deus homo, why would God have to become man? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. It is no mystery to say the mortal dies, no mystery to say the immortal lives. One author says, by dissolving the mystery, Theopascatism makes easy and plausible what in reality is the deepest, most staggering, humbling Christian mystery of all, that God the impassable suffers as a man. If you allow me to borrow four minutes, we'll finish with these points of application first. Why is this good news? That's a lot of theology, a lot of history. Why is this good news? Number one, it means we have an unchanging God who is not in the same mess that we are in. He is a far cry from the God of process theology. This God reigns in heaven, receives unceasing worship from the saints and angels. He needs nothing from human hands. He is in a perpetual state of delight in his own glory and goodness. Second, the unchanging God, who is ontologically, that is in his being, outside of our mess, is nevertheless intimately involved in our mess, which makes his presence all the more meaningful, doesn't it? My sons love Legos. We have given so much money to Denmark, where they were invented, I think. And uh, my son just has walls and walls of all these Legos, you know, the bricks construction. And he's now, as he gets older, he can probably do it better than I can. But especially when he was younger, he'd sometimes get very frustrated and, and then with tears and he'd get angry and he can't find the peace. And in the midst of all of his anguish and anxiety and suffering, he'd ask, Dad, won't you come help me? So I would come and I'd stoop down. Now why? I'm not in his anguish. I'm not in his mess. I don't need to help put the Legos together to relieve any burden on me but I, separate from it, step 
into that out of love and affection. And so God does with us. Which leads to a third reason that impassibility is good news. It means that God's love is freely given, thoroughly unmotivated by need or deficiency. God does not feel inner angst or agony or distress. Even when we may care for someone in our congregation, perhaps there's a little bit of us that, you know, wants the strokes that come from it or want to feel good about ourselves or there's some, something we're seeking even for ourselves in a moment of selflessness, but it's never the case with God. He does not have to relieve any suffering on his part. He chooses to love because he is love. In the triune Godhead, there's a constant fullness of mercy and joy and goodness to which we can never add and never subtract so that God always acts out of overflow, never out of want. As someone once said, why did God create the universe? To go public with his glory. It was not because he was lonely, for he existed in all time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it was out of the overflow of his fullness. Fourth, with divine impassibility, the incarnation is not a revelation of the eternal suffering of God, but rather the deepest expression of God's gracious character, whereby he chose to suffer as one of us. So listen carefully. Our comfort in the midst of suffering is not that the Father suffered with the Son, nor that God is perpetually suffering with us. Our profound consolation is that the God who did not suffer sent His Son so that He might suffer as a man. The incarnation of the Son of God and His passion is more glorious more loving because God in the person of Christ was experiencing by his own voluntary choice what God in himself had never experienced, human suffering. Which leads to a fifth and final reason. Impassibility is good news because only an impassable God who suffered as a man can truly sympathize with us. What good would it do to have a God who as God could be overcome by pain? We need a God who knows what it is like to be a man. So here's the irony. If God suffers as God, we actually lock him out of our experience rather than bringing him fully into it. What we need is the sure knowledge that the Son of God knows exactly what we are feeling. So we do not look to an angst-ridden, pain-stricken, eternally grieving God for our comfort. We don't need to because we can look to the cross. Carl Henry said, it is, it is into the why of Calvary that we can now focus every other me of human existence. We do not have to hold the loved one's hand and say, God hurts as much as you. You can say, we have a risen, conquering Savior who still bears the scars in his hand. And in love, he came to become a man to suffer just as you are suffering. He is our sympathetic high priest. He had to become this high priest. He had to be made perfect through suffering to be qualified as our redeemer and our sympathizer and our savior so that he took on flesh to suffer with his brothers and sisters. He did not simply identify with us. He rescued us. We need someone to do more than feel our pain. We need someone to triumph over our pain, conquer it, all of its sin, death, and the devil. So our hope in death and suffering is that this great mystery, the immortal, dies. And our comfort in suffering is that in the incarnation, the impassable was made passable for us. And that is good news. Let us pray. Oh, Father, in the midst of all that we have been receiving from your word and all of the thoughts and the conversations, would there be just something here in these last moments that would be an encouragement to us in the ministry that would help us to understand your word? And sometimes it is good to stretch our thinking and our vocabulary just to remind us of what a great cloud of witnesses have come before us and to remind us of what a magnificent mystery the incarnation truly is. Thank you for sending your son. 
Thank you that he became as one of us. Thank you that he suffered as one of us. Thank you that he can sympathize with us even now. And we look to him for all that we lack, knowing that you, O God, lack for nothing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We will close with the white songbooks. 23, tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Number 23, let's stand and sing. so very, very much for his ministry among us. He's leaving us um, after lunch, I think. And uh, please, you go with our love and our deep gratitude, Kevin.